Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. Today, we're discussing immigration and asylum, which in the years before Brexit and since has become a key issue in public discourse and for government, most recently with the focus turning to people crossing the channel in small boats. It's the focus of our cover story, too, on how to solve the immigration crisis, That's written by David Normington, who joins us today. He is a former permanent secretary for the Home Office and was in that role at the last time that the department wrestled with an enormous asylum backlog. He's going to tell us what the Home Office should do next. And alongside us is May Bullman, who's investigations editor at the newsroom Lighthouse Reports. May has years of experience reporting on Britain's asylum and immigration system. She was formerly social affairs correspondent at The Independent and has also written a piece in the current issue of Prospect about how our European neighbours have tackled their own problems. May, I wonder if we'd come to you first of all. You begin your piece with a scene about a young man recently arrived from Syria with his mother, who is, as you put it, in limbo in the UK asylum system. Can you tell us about who he is and what his story says to us about the experience in the asylum system today? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I start my piece with a short kind of paragraph about a young man who I met a couple of months ago in a coffee shop in London. Um, He had arrived in the UK just over a year ago with his mother. They came from Syria. They actually fled Syria, I think, back in around 2016 or 2015. And they basically have kind of, they travelled through Turkey. They were in Turkey for a while. And then they got to Europe and they spent some time, and I couldn't go into this in the piece, but they did spend some time in Sweden. But they had a really difficult time there. They waited for a long time for a decision and they actually got a rejection in the end. And then they decided to come to the UK They got to France, got to northern France and paid a smuggler several thousand pounds to get in a small boat and cross the channel. I think it took about three attempts. And he described that as a very traumatizing experience, you know, with, yeah, darkness and almost drowning at one point. They eventually got to the UK and they were really hopeful that this would finally be where they would, you know, find sanctuary. And then they were they were taken to a hotel, this hotel in London, and been there for now over a year and haven't been able to work. Obviously, that you know, asylum seekers aren't allowed to work, and t- they, you can apply after twelve months, but it's even then it's incredibly difficult, and that the the jobs that you can take are very limited. So he was 
he's in his early 20s and he was in just a really it was actually a really sad experience because I'd never met someone in their early 20s who was so kind of depressed and actually just very lonely and he described a situation where he just you know he barely leaves the room that they're living in occasionally he'll go for walks on his own but he actually just really wanted a friend and even even just meeting up with me I think he was like happy to see someone um but yeah he 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 was clearly just um really desperate to get on with his life and to 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 find a job and to start a career but he just isn't, isn't able to do so and you know he he and his mother are among um more than now I think 160,000 people waiting for an initial decision and now the average waiting time is about a year and a half so you know all these people living in limbo many of them in hotels which are costing the taxpayer like more than five million pounds a day I think um and you know, to, to what end, I guess, yeah. it's, it's so inhumane. Um, and it's actually not helpful for anyone. It's costing the taxpayer huge amounts as well. So, so tough conditions for the people who have arrived here. Long waits to get a decision. These are some of the things that, David, you touch upon in your piece as well about the, the scale of the backlog and the scale uh, of what is now a crisis because the backlog has accumulated to such a, to such a degree. David, can you give us your sense of the problem, the issue now at hand for the government and what they ultimately need to fix? Well, that really tragic story illustrates the problem of having a huge backlog. And the problem starts with the need for really effective management of the asylum system, which at the moment we do not have. And the best way of bringing humanity to this system is to have people considering their um, the asylum claims as fast as possible. Um, and that is just not happening. I mean, it could be that that Syrian and his mother will be refused, but if they are to be refused, it would be much better if they're refused quickly rather than left in limbo. I mean, it is absolutely shocking that somebody should be left waiting over a year in that kind of limbo. It's absolutely shocking and unacceptable. So the first job, and this is what I say in my article, is not to make headline-grabbing announcements about returning people to Rwanda or sending people to Rwanda. It is to have effective management of the system. And that is what we don't have at the moment. And I can't understand why it has got so bad, because what has happened is that the productivity of the case workers considering claims in the Home Office has fallen through the floor. And this didn't happen as a result of COVID. It happened several years before, and the backlog has been growing simply because productivity amongst the case workers has fallen so sharply. And uh, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, they were clearing 13, 14 cases a month on initial consideration. Now, they're doing under five. Even though the number of caseworkers has increased, they're doing fewer than they did 10 or 12 years ago. And that is the source of the problem, the initial problem of the, the case we heard of the Syrian young man and his mother. I'd love to get a little bit more into, into those solutions later on. But before we do that, um, I just want to touch upon the politicisation of this issue because that's part of this whole story and one of the key points that you made David in your piece is that actually the UK could relatively easily absorb the three quarters of applicants who will be 
successful in their applications. So why why has this become such a contentious topic in government and more widely in society? Well, I think for two reasons. Uh, it's clearly the people coming across on boats, it's very visible and it is causing distress both to those coming and to those particularly on the coast who see them coming. And secondly, therefore, there's a sense of a loss of control of our borders. It's a very visible sign, and this is why it becomes so politicised, a very visible sign that the government is unable to secure our borders and to control the immigration and asylum system properly. And that's why it then goes up the list of public concerns. And although the numbers are quite small, and this is what I say in my article, compared with the total numbers of migrants coming to the UK, it's the visibility and the symbol it gives of a government that can't control the borders. Because people didn't always come in small boats, did they? That that wasn't the main route in. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Previously, kind of prior to 2018, when the small boats really started to pick up, um, people were mainly stowing away in lorries, um, on ferries, sometimes in trains. Um, so it was a far less visible um, you know, movement of people. And I think I mean, the numbers now have actually increased like as a whole. But in kind of 2018, 19, the numbers actually of people claiming asylum hadn't hadn't changed that much. But yet it was something that was suddenly in the media and it was such a big political issue. Um, whereas before, you know, the same numbers were applying for asylum and coming, um, you know, coming to the UK. But that, that, that wasn't a big issue. So I think that, that what David... Um, said about the visibility of the small boats is definitely plays a big role in this. Um, but I'd also add that I think like ministers have kind of fueled that as well because it, you know, they've, there's been such a kind of um, toxic like rhetoric around the whole issue. And, and we've seen sort of back in um, 2019, we had like Sajid Javid um, when, when the, the boats were first starting, he, I think he said, um, he questioned whether they were all genuine refugees. And that, that there was a massive outcry about what, the fact that he'd said that. But then kind of around a year later, Priti Patel, who, who then became Home Secretary, was um, described, started describing people crossing the channel as illegal migrants. And even though that, you know, that is not the case, um, but that became kind of normalised. And then more recently, Suella Braverman actually said that there had been, you know, she described the, the, the boats coming across the channel as an, a, an invasion of our south coast. And that, you know, compared to what was being said in 2019, that's a huge kind of ramping up of the toxic rhetoric. And that, but now it's just kind of the norm. And I do think that that, that plays a role in all this. The public's concern is fueled by what ministers are saying. And then, it, but it kind of doesn't make sense because they're creating a problem for themselves then. And then there's more and more pressure to, to then resolve the issue. But as David said, the numbers aren't actually that big, especially when you also compare them to other European countries. You know, the numbers coming to the UK are not actually very very large. And absolutely agree with this point that public opinion goes up and down and you can influence public opinion by the way you talk about this issue. And in my mind, there's no doubt that ministers have talked up the issue rather than tried to change the discourse about refugees and about the desperate need that they're in. I'm sure that, well, I know that public opinion can think differently about refugees who are in need. And, and this country has a tradition of taking refugees and being much kinder to them. And I would say one of the things we need to do is to change the discourse so that people don't get quite 
quite so alarmed by the numbers who are coming across the channel. It would be better if they didn't have to get into boats because obviously that is very, very dangerous um, to them and it's, an, it's very unacceptable. But we need to understand the desperate circumstances that many are in and talk differently about their plight. Yeah. Just quickly to add to that, I mean, we've we've just seen huge numbers of Ukrainian refugees coming to the UK and, you know, people have generally been quite quite happy about that, happy to welcome these people and it hasn't kind of caused a massive... I mean, there, there are issues there with people finding housing and so on, but but it's not caused this, this big outcry and actually the numbers of Ukrainians who have come are much higher than the numbers crossing the channel. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that you know, we are capable. The British publish, public are capable of welcoming refugees. And I think, yeah, it's kind of up, partly up to the ministers to try to change that that rhetoric and, you know, not to, to talk about the small boats as a... Part of the way in which you change the rhetoric is to make sure that the system is working effectively so that people who are not genuine refugees are sorted from those who are. And there are people, and some of them are from Albania, not all, but some are, who are almost certainly not genuine refugees. Um, And the system needs to deal effectively and quickly with those who are and those who are not, so that you get uh, increasing public confidence that the right people are being allowed to stay because of their desperate situation. And those who are not refugees are sent back to their countries. Because if people see the system working quickly and fairly and effectively, you can then use that as part of changing the discourse. Um, I'd love to hear from both of you your thoughts on the recent government policy innovations. There, are, Some of them are extremely controversial. Rwanda, of course, also plans to send applicants to other far-flung islands. Those don't sound like the kind of ideas that would tackle that backlog may yeah i mean actually in my piece i i kind of list uh, a number of the policies that they've announced in the last couple of years and which haven't come to fruition yet um so there's yeah they announced that they wanted to bring in wave machines to push the boats away they wanted to start pushbacks in the channel so border force going and trying to turn around boats and pushing them back um they wanted to send asylum seekers to disused oil platforms or remote islands all of those plans that were announced kind of with fanfare or you know they were floated you know and ministers were saying they could be the real you know the silver bullet for tackling the problem they very quickly you know it became clear that that wasn't going to be possible they weren't legal or they were just completely unworkable then obviously the rwanda plan nearly a year ago now it was announced um and there is still ongoing legal challenges around that so it's not happened. They have paid this upfront. Uh, I think it's 140 million pounds upfront um, payment to Rwanda. Yet nothing has actually happened. And also important to note that the, the number of small boats coming, you know, people arriving on small boats in the channel haven't gone down as a result of that kind of deterrence attempt so um that hasn't worked and then more recently there's been an announcement i think rishi sunak said that he wants to basically deport anyone who has crossed the channel sort of detain and deport very quickly but again it's not clear how that would work um you know how that would be legal so i think that yeah basically the way that they've gone about trying to tackle the problem is by announcing as david said these dramatic you know policy plans that actually haven't you know they're completely unworkable and um i think that that's actually ended up being a distraction from the the kind of maintaining the core functions of the asylum system 
you know, that being decision making and actually processing claims. And um, civil servants in the Home Office have told me that, that that's the way they feel, that the, all the um, sort of attention has been on these new policy announcements that they've been having to try to implement, but it's been incredibly difficult to do that. And then in the meantime, the resources and the time has been taken away from actually just making decisions, which is the most important part of the system. Um, And now we're in this position where there's this huge backlog and it kind of feels like the whole system is collapsing. I think the important thing now is just to actually go back, you know, start thinking a bit more rationally and pragmatically and go back to actually focusing on decision making. After the break, we'll delve further into the possible solutions to the crisis and ask whether there are lessons to be learned from our European neighbours. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to consume more of our journalism, we'd encourage you to subscribe. A subscription unlocks full access to Prospect content across newsletters, web, app and print. And right now, a subscription to Prospect costs as little as £1 per month. Visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and subscribe now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. David, I would love to come back to your experience within government dealing with very similar problems and and get stuck into what we think the solutions to the current uh, to the current backlog is. So we've you mentioned earlier the importance of processes and and sort of ba- basic sounding things like staff. So could you give us a sense of the problem as it was when you dealt with it in the Home Office and what you think the Home Office should do now? Just to say there are no easy solutions to these problems and one should always beware of those who grab the headlines with policies like we'll send them all to Rwanda. That is basically, apart from what has just been said, a cruel policy. It's inhumane and we should, as a decent country, have no truck with it. However, go back to answering your question. Um, uh, We had a a backlog of cases um, of 450,000 when I arrived in the Home Office in 2006. We didn't know whether those were people or cases. In other words, we didn't even know whether there was a lot of double counting in that. So um, there was a lot to do. And basically, um, we set about 
um, increasing the number of staff, training them properly, having um, a, a very large team dedicated to dealing with that backlog. And we worked our way through that backlog over four years. And senior people like me never took our eyes off the need to deal with that backlog. The longer people are waiting, the more and more difficult it is to find the evidence, sometimes to find them. Um, so at the end of four years, we still had, I don't know, it may have been about 100,000 people where we had less and less basis for deciding their cases. So that's one of the problems of having to wait um, so long. One of the things we, um, we, we looked at the systems, we tried to simplify the systems, we tried to improve the IT. There are no headlines for ministers in any of this, um, but those are the ways in which eventually we did reduce the backlogs and get the system back into some sort of balance. So there's no magic solution. It was just a lot of senior leadership and attention to every part of the system and then investment, a huge investment of staff and training to work through the backlog. And we put one of our best people in charge of that process. Um, not the sort of person who you would normally pluck out to run what ought to be a straightforward um, administrative system, but one of our best people who was able to keep right on it year after year. Some, some, the government is doing some of that, I think, but they have such a mountain to climb because if you read what the Chief Inspector of Boards and Immigration is saying, for instance, morale in the Home Office in these teams is very low. Um, uh, some of the systems um, are very clunky um, and there's a big turnover and training is poor, so there's a lot to do. And even if you recruit more staff, there will be a delay before they're trained and fully effective. If I may just say one other thing, we've just seen the government decide not to have some people, 12,000 people interviewed face-to-face, -face, but actually for their claims to be considered just on paper. In other words, they're going to be sent a questionnaire to fill in. And these are 12,000 people, we are told, who come from the five countries where they are most likely to have their refugee status gra granted. It's an ironic thing, this, isn't it? In another bit of the government's brain, brain they want to send those 12,000 to Rwanda, don't they, or to deport them. But actually, they're going to fast-track them into refugee status, which is the right thing to do. The unfortunate thing is that, and this is, you know, I love the Home Office dearly, but the unfortunate thing is it looks as though the administration that they're putting around this fast track is very clunky. 50 questions in the questionnaire, complicated questions, all in English. You have to fill it out in English, only 20 days to do it. So, Basically, it's the right thing to focus on those who can be fast-tracked. It's just that the administration around it looks as though it's going to be very ineffective. I just want to say we've been focusing a lot on dealing with the backlog, but when you've taken the decision about who can stay and who needs to be returned, you then need to make sure that you can actually return them to a safe country. And the government has almost no ability to return people. 
So then people get stuck in another bit of the system. Often they're detained in an asylum centre and they're, and they're kept there. And this brings me to my third point. The government needs to work harder to find safe countries and to reach agreement with safe countries so that people can be returned. And that starts with an agreement with the EU and particularly with France, but with other countries too. It has a safe uh, country agreement with Albania, which is helpful. But if it's going to base its policy on deporting people, then it needs to have somewhere to deport them to. And unfortunately, we keep hearing these announcements about we're going to deport people, but everybody knows that they can't. And therefore, that makes the policy look ineffective. One might almost say stupid. Yeah, and worth mentioning there as well, Brexit has actually removed one of our mechanisms for returning people to Europe. I mean, our only mechanism for doing that, which was the Dublin regulation. I mean, it it was never that... um, effective to be honest because yeah they weren't able to remove that many people under it but it did mean that there was a way in which people who you could you know who had traveled through say Germany or France could be returned to those countries and yeah the the home office was promising that after Brexit they'd have these new bilateral deals with these countries that would actually improve returns but of course these you know the countries weren't interested in doing this and um yeah there are no bilateral deals with with those EU countries. But you know we were we were um uh, returning either voluntarily or compulsorily f- about 45,000 people a year um, from about 2009 through to 2015. Uh, now, it well, it has been below 10,000. Um, it's slightly better, but nowhere near back to what it was and nowhere near what it was before COVID struck. So there's a big, big need to look at that part of the system too. Can we just dig into why that is as well? Is that similarly to do with staff? Because they haven't got any returns agreements, partly. It's very, very difficult to return people and it's almost impossible to return them to some of the countries where they will be in most danger, like Syria or like Afghanistan. That's why people should be granted refugee status if they have a case from those countries, because returning them is almost impossible. Um, But... As we were just hearing, there is something that could be done to improve returns policy if you have better agreements, particularly with the EU. The Dublin regulations were not fantastic, but they were better than nothing. Uh, I'm hopeful that maybe if we can get the Northern Ireland Protocol out of the way, there will be the basis for better discussions, particularly with France, about what can be done, not just on returns, but also on tackling the smuggling gangs, because some of the solutions are in those diplomatic relations, which actually have been in fair amount of disrepair until recently. May, in your piece, you talk about France and Germany in terms of sort of the example that they've set about something Britain could do. In 2015, 2016, both of those countries saw huge numbers of um, asylum applicants, people arriving largely from Syria, but also elsewhere. What did they do that got their backlog down and can you give us a sense of kind of the progress they made Mm. Mm. yeah sure I mean yeah I felt like it was really worth doing this comparison exercise between the UK and some other European countries with similar sized economies because it does feel like this whole debate around asylum 
can be very inward looking in the UK. And we've got these kind of very polarised discussions about it that don't really get anywhere. So yeah, I had a look at what France and Germany did when they saw a big increase in asylum claims. So Germany back in 2015-16 saw a huge increase because they basically opened their borders to Syrian refugees. It was about a 260% increase within a couple of years. And you know, th- this did cause a lot of consternation. Angela Merkel's um, poll, you know, her popularity in the polls went went down quite a lot. But what they did, instead of kind of an, coming up with crazy policies that weren't going to be workable, they just really ramped up their decision-making decision um, abilities. They massively increased the number of decision-makers and they actually became like the, the largest asylum processing hub in the world for a while I think there were 10,000 decision makers um, and at the same time they they were improving the process as well so the, the decision making the quality w- was pretty high and it meant that within a couple of years they they had managed to kind of keep decisions up with applications and that's with the UK that's really what's gone wrong is that the applicants you know the number of applications have recently gone up there has been a bit of a spike but at the same time, decision making has just gone down, which is kind of crazy. And this, when you look at the, a graph of the decision making versus applications, there's just this massive widening gap in the UK. Whereas in Germany, there's kind of even even when decision applications went up, it stayed more or less. Um, they were able to kind of keep up. And then equally in France, it was actually in the four years to 2019, they saw a big increase, I think, in claims around doubled and um, they did the same thing they really focused on improving decision making speed and now actually France I think in 2021 their decisions were higher than their applications so you know they've been able to keep up with that so I think that's yeah it's interesting to see that that's what those those countries did when they faced the same issues that the UK very similar issues that the UK is facing today Um, you know they kind of approached them with pragmatism and it did kind of work. I'm not saying those, they're perfect in any way. You know, they, France and Germany do have their issues when it comes to asylum. And I think they both struggle with returns as well. So, you know, that is a challenge that a lot of European, like a lot of countries um, who accept asylum seekers are facing. But, yeah, I think it's just it, it does tell us that if, if you approach it with a bit of um, pragmatism, then, you know, instead of just dramatic policy announcements that aren't going to work, that does ultimately work. And so this... You know, Rishi Sunak, his recent announcements about increasing staff numbers more um, and trying to increase productivity. And, you know, that is all kind of steps in the right direction, I think. But at the same time, it does have to come with, um, you know, it's not just about increasing the number of decision makers. Um, Decision makers I've spoken to have said that even now the morale is very low, as David was alluding to earlier. Um, There isn't much progression. They've got really Um, really high staff turnover at the moment so people are leaving very quickly and that needs to be tackled as well Um, and just to mention actually on the questionnaire um, what you said David about yeah concerns that it won't be kind of administrated properly that that really echoes just what I was um, what I was discussing with a caseworker just the other day he said that um, you know it's a step in the right direction but the concern is that the way it's going to be it will be kind of done in a bit of a rush and that there will be problems that come with it. So I think it's just about, I don't know, taking it very, um, I guess, slowly and not rushing into things because, yeah, there's a tendency, I think, in the Home Office at the moment to just want to, like, you know, Rishi Sunak saying he's going to clear the backlog, the pre-June 2022 backlog by the end of this year. And it's like sometimes you can't, maybe you shouldn't make these really wild promises that you're not going to be able to, um, to, to fulfil. 
it, it I mean, it's a, it would be a great thing if it were achieved. It's just how they achieve it. And if that leads to all kinds of other problems and unfairness in the system, that is not the right way to do it. But actually, if they could get the backlog down and if they could, they talk about triaging people so that, um, and that's, I guess, what um, they're trying to do by fast-tracking 12,000 as a start, um, triaging those who are most likely to have their claims accepted, um, maybe triaging those who are most likely not to have their claims accepted. Um, those are, that is the right way to think. But you do then need to have the systems in place. If you're just chasing numbers, we see this across government all the time, very familiar with it from my time in government, you get perverse results. Chasing targets, you get perverse results. If I may just say one thing about France and Germany, they have been much more effective in returning people to Albania. In fact, they've returned larger numbers than we have. I think they were onto that issue much quicker than we have. You know, in immigration and asylum policy, you need to be constantly looking at who is coming, what the need is, and you need to be ready to change your policies fast and inject more staff if necessary, if you see the numbers changing or the types of claims being made changing. If if you leave it for six months or a year, you go straight into the kind of difficulties with backlogs we've been talking about. And worth just saying before we round off that as we sort of were finalising both of your pieces last week, there was this new round of data coming out of the Home Office on, um, on asylum numbers um, and also in sort of an update on the the numbers of applications being granted and being refused and one of the things that I'd love to just hear your thoughts on that the Home Office uh, kind of put the top of that was that they that last year there was the highest grant rate um, for I think 30 years for a very long time what does that does that tell us anything about what's going on inside the Home Office now and where we can expect this backlog to kind of go over the next year well, it, it, it ought to be telling us that a lot of the people who are coming and claiming asylum are genuine asylum seekers whose claims are genuine and who need to be welcomed here into the UK. We were talking earlier about the need to change the discourse. If it is the case, and it almost certainly is, that a lot of the people coming are genuine refugees and asylum seekers, let us understand that, welcome them, deal with their cases quickly and help them to settle in the UK. Right back to the beginning of this conversation, we have the capacity in this country to deal with 20 or 30,000 asylum seekers and to settle them um, and to welcome them. Um, Actually, more than that, but let's stick with those numbers first. And if we do, we can then change the nature of the public discourse about asylum seeking. So I think that's what the figures tell us. I mean, you could say it's another example of the Home Office just trying to get the numbers through, but I don't think that is so. Um, uh, I think it is that a lot of the claims are genuine claims. Mm, Yeah, I I would echo that for sure. I think, yeah, those figures showed that more than three quarters of applicants are being granted asylum. And we see from the the nationality statistics of asylum seekers that the majority are from um, nationalities with the grant rates that are kind of 95% and up. So, you know, it is the fact that most of the people coming on small boats are people who will be granted refugee status. Why are we keeping them in hotels for 
a year to a year and a half, even longer, you know, where they can't work. It's just costing money to the taxpayer. These people do not want to be in hotels. The hotels are not. I know there's a whole rhetoric that they're in luxury hotels, but I've spoken to lots of these people. I've been to these hotels. It's it's far from luxury. You know, people are families are living in tiny cramped rooms. They're not able to work They're they're not able to kind of move on with their lives in any way it's really crippling for people's mental health and then the sad thing is once they're granted status which most of them as we were just saying will be they then it's even more difficult for them to then integrate and move on with their lives so I think it makes sense you know coming back to the the point we're making about decision making and you know focusing that should be the priority now make decisions so that you know, people can get on with their lives and it will cost us less as a country as well. And and also just to make the point, we do have a lot of um, job shortages in the UK. It's not like, you know, these people want to work and there are jobs to be done. So, yeah, yeah um, hopefully with these new announcements by Rishi Sunak, that will lead to some um, speeding up of the processing of asylum claims and, you know, fingers crossed that we see some changes in the years to come. May I, may I just add one thing? Don't underestimate public concern about these things and address it head on because we could violently disagree and violently agree in this conversation and then forget that there are a lot of people worrying about this issue in the public, particularly on the South Coast. But the way to allay those concerns is, as Mayor said, to deal with the asylum seekers effectively and quickly. Well, thanks so much to David and May for sharing your insights and spending this time with us today. If And if you at home have enjoyed this podcast, then do grab a copy of our latest issue of Prospect magazine, which includes David's essay and May's piece as well, as well as reporting from Lizzie Porter in Iraq 20 years after the invasion, a profile of Pakistan's former Prime Minister and cricket star Imran Khan by journalist Atika Rehman, and a searing analysis by Martin Percy of why King Charles's forthcoming coronation could be a disaster for the Church of England. But that's all for today, so goodbye, thanks very much, and listen out for a new episode of the Prospect Podcast next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.